Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Left of Straight Show with your host, Scott Fullerton, as we discuss everything under the rainbow sun, from LGBT issues to foodies, entertainment to books. Join us as we talk to some of the most interesting leaders and celebrity LGBT guests and allies on the Internet. So grab a cocktail, it's always happy hour somewhere, and enjoy the show. Now, here's your host, Scott Fullerton. Well, howdy, 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 everybody. Welcome to the Left of Straight Show. It is Monday, June 8th, 2020. I am your host, Scott Fullerton. Welcome back, everyone. I know we left kind of last week on an abrupt note. Um, Tuesday's show was very hard to get through. We've been dealing with all the protests and everything with Black Lives Matter and the important change and hopeful shift we're going through in our country. So Tuesday was a rough show for me. It was I was so happy to have Jay Mack on, uh, who gave a great perspective from his point of view, fantastic singer-songwriter. But I just felt that it wasn't my voice that needed to be heard last week. So I postponed the rest of the shows. We did not do shows Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. We are back this week. Um, the protests are more peaceful, so the people that were looting everything that were not part of the protesters have died down. Um, there's still massive protests, which I'm very proud to see out there. A lot of my friends in L.A. L.A. had a huge turnout yesterday on Sunday. Uh, a lot of my friends were there. A lot of celebrities were there incognito offering their support, and it was a great show of solidarity. So. I'm glad to be back on the air. I apologize for kind of pulling the last three episodes off the air abruptly. Thank you so much to my guests last week. I had all new interviews scheduled that graciously moved into this week and next for uh, to make room for everyone. So thank you for that. And we will be here Monday through Friday, every day, starting this week again, uh, 6 o'clock Pacific, 9 o'clock Eastern, every day. We're getting ready for the big gay road trip. I leave in four weeks. I cannot believe that's happening already. But I have a great show for you today, Um, three amazing uh, chats. I'm going to start off in just a second with Nathaniel Hunt. Uh, Nate is a good friend of a friend of the show, Michael Mott, the composer from New York. Uh, It's his boyfriend. And Nate is an amazing dancer in his own right. But he has put together a great weekend fundraiser bringing together 19 other people to talk about what's happening in society right now and i was planning on being them on live but we we kind of got our signals crossed so we had a pre-taped interview just finished a little while ago i told him i'd keep him for like 45 minutes and we talked for over an hour so thank you nate for taking that time with me i thought we discussed some very important issues so i'm going to play that in just a couple minutes here 
So that's going to last about an hour. When that is over, we're going to do our musical minute with Zach Day from The Voice. And he actually had a fundraiser as well this weekend with his fellow Voice contestants. They raised money for Black Lives Matter as well. And so he's going to talk about a group in Tennessee that he used to work with, uh, his old theater company there, Distillery Theater Company. And uh, they're going to perform for us. And then we're going to go to our musical guest for this Music Monday. And Tommy Atkins, all the way over from the U.K., is going to be here. It is a pre-taped interview because it's about, oh, what, 2 o'clock in the morning right now in the U.K.? Tommy's interview won't air until about 3.20 in the morning. So he will probably most likely hear this in the morning. But we had a great interview. Tommy is a country music singer-songwriter. His cover of George Michael's freedom is amazing and we're going to talk to him a little bit as well so i'm going to start off here with an interview with nate hunt and then we're going to have our musical minute with zach day right around i would say five to ten after uh the hour next hour and then we're going to finish up about 10 minutes after that right around 10 20 7 20 pacific time we're going to have my interview with Tommy Atkins. So great show, all three pre-taped interviews, but you're going to love every single one of them. Nate, I just talked to a couple of minutes ago, and Zach recorded his this morning, and I talked to Tommy late last week. So great interviews all. Thanks so much for tuning in. I will be chatting probably between guests, and definitely I'll wrap everything up at the end. Thanks for listening to the Left of Straight show right here in the Left of Straight radio network. Let's do a brief song, and when we come back, going to have my amazing guest Nate Hunt talk about what he did this weekend and what this Black Lives Matter movement why it's so important and what it means to him so if you're listening to Left the Trade she'll be back in just a couple of minutes
you guys and gals. We are back. That was our buddy Preston Wiggins with Into the Unknown. Doesn't that sum up the last couple of weeks and months we've been having, guys? But I'm excited to get right to it with my very first guest today. He is friend adjacent to the show, as I've had his boyfriend, Michael Mott, in the show quite a few times. And I'm excited to finally be able to talk to him. He's an accomplished dancer, having graduated summa cum laude with a BFA in dance from Long Island University in Brooklyn. As an undergraduate, his choreography was selected to be performed at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. He has worked and performed both in repertoire and professionally and toured both domestically and internationally, including the renowned Metropolitan Opera. This week, he's been an important voice in the times we're experiencing with renewed emphasis on Black Lives Matter and equality. And I'm so happy he's here to talk about all of that and his career. So please welcome to the Leftist Trade Show for the very first, Mr. Nathaniel Hunt. Nate, how you doing, buddy? Hi, I'm good. I'm so honored to be here. Um, thank you so much for having me. I am honored to have you. As I said, I've I've known about you in circles, talking to Michael, of course. Have, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's been great kind of getting to know you adjacent like that, but to finally be able to talk to you not only about your career, but in these important times we have going on right now. And you have been yeah. an amazing voice. And just this weekend alone, I want to talk about that experience. You've put some time in, my friend, with a lot of yeah. your friends and raised – almost $7,000, I believe. Let's talk with that. Go ahead yeah, and talk absolutely. about what you've been doing and um, what this weekend's meant to you. Yeah, so uh, this past weekend, uh, Friday through Sunday, I curated a three-day virtual fundraising event for the NAACP and Color of Change. I called it Rise, Reflect, Restore. Each day was a different uh word so to speak so friday was rise where we are like getting up getting out get moving the second day saturday was reflect reflecting about ourselves uh reflecting on the past reflecting on what's going on outside our own door and then restoring day three on sunday about rebuilding um you know restoring our faith uh so we can actually move forward and it was an incredible three days. It was an exhausting three days. It was a lot of output. <laughs> um, we had, I was so fortunate that I had, including myself, there was 20 facilitators, which included teachers, therapists, motivators, healers, a youth minister, poets, singers, songwriters, dancers. It was this eclectic group of diverse individuals of all races, of all colors, of all ages, um, of all different beliefs, kind of all saying the same three words, rise, reflect, and restore. And it was, it kind of just sparked out of this like, oh, okay, I I need to do something, right? Like a few weeks ago when I found out about the murder of Breonna Taylor, I was like hysterical. I was, I was like, I I was fearful, you know, I thought that someone could come into my New York City apartment and and hurt me while I was sleeping. It was really traumatizing. And, you know, I felt like I had this veil of fear and this veil of sadness um, over me for like 48 hours after that. And I remember talking to my family and my friends and, and to my boyfriend about, you know, I need to be able to 
be okay. I need to do something because unfortunately this will happen again. And now, you know, what happened with George Floyd, I had already had that conversation with myself of like, you, you know, feel your feelings. One of the best pieces of advice my mom has ever given me is, you know, allow your feelings in, feel them, feel their validity, but also let them go. You know, she uses the analogy of like, don't let them pay rent in the house of your mind. Um, Mm. And so for me, I, I had thought, okay, these feelings with George, it is, I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm so deeply saddened, but I need, what am I going to do with that, Nate? What am I going to, what, what am I going to do? And so my first kind of action, I created this anti-racism resource and action step just on Google Docs because a lot, I am biracial. My mom is white and my dad is black. So I'm kind of like split right down the middle. And a lot of like my white family and white friends were like, what can I do? Help me. Like, what, what can I do in this moment? Like, please, please, please. Um, after finding out about right. George and I was like, do this, sign that, call this, donate here. And I was like, let me just make it easier for everyone to just put it in a Google Doc. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I had kind of posted some stuff, put some stuff up on there, posted on my Facebook, and it like flew like wildfire. People were picking it up and sharing it. So that made me kind of realize like, oh, wow, okay. I only thought that my platform was dance, that I could only speak and be heard through the language of dance. And now mm. it wasn't. Here was, an, here was kind of this uncovering of sorts that I did have a voice that people were looking to me and looking at me and hear and listening to what I was saying. So then, you know, with, like I said, that those feelings from Brianna, that sense of I needing to do something more, um, this selfish thing of like, I cannot feel, I cannot be anchored by this. I need to, you know, that I cannot be victim of these emotions, but then this real feeling of like, wow, people actually are listening to what I'm saying. All right. <laughs> so that's what was kind of sparked uh, Rise, Reflect, and Restore. And we had these incredible discussions about being biracial or blended relationships, about um, race and sex education, how in, in most educational systems in public schools, the way they teach sex ed, how that has a direct relationship to racism. It was, I mean, it, we talked about faith and and a white, you know, evangelical Christian giving her kind of perspective on how to use her, you know, Bible to make action on racism. It was mind blowing. I was like the most shook <laughs> the entire weekend. <laughs> and I was like, Oh my God. I was like, I didn't know that. Like it, it was so informative, but we had these, I, like I said, I was so blessed to have these, 19 other people so willing to donate their time and their talent and their wisdom and their, and their knowledge and their space. Um, because, you know, I, I think how I feel like, you know, I'm not an ambassador for the black community, (laughs) you know, I'm, I am (laughs) black. And so I, you know, I think that that's something that people I think are doing right now, running to their nearest black person saying, what can I do? And, I understand why, um, but for me, of how I feel is that I feel that, you know, black people have been screaming for years and we are just now being heard, but we, right. need, the, we need the voices of, of white people, of, 
of non-white, non-black, you know, these in-between spaces, these other minorities and majorities to amplify our voices so that it can be clearer, so that it can be louder. Um, and so that for me was, was what I wanted to try to portray this past weekend, um, that, that there's that unity in that, that there's the diversity in that, that there's the connectivity with that. And, you know, of course it wasn't about the money, right? We would do this if it was free. I would do it if it was free. Sure. Um, but the fact that we raised like $6,400 in three days for two incredible causes, it's like, you know, my mom had asked me, well, honey, did you have any, like, did you have a goal in mind? I was like, yeah, mom, $1,000. She was like, well, you blew that out the water, <laughs> didn't you? <laughs> so, nice. you know, I was overwhelmed with emotion. Um, yesterday when I had all, all of the – all of the facilitators on a zoom call. And I, you know, I wanted to tell them first how much we had made. And I was just overwhelmed with emotion because it was a clear sign. It was a clear symbol that we can make change together, but it has to be together. And so, yeah, I was, uh, you know, today I was like, oh, thank God I get to sleep until, you know, 11, <laughs> my time, Eastern <laughs> Standard Time, you know, popped that melatonin last night and I slept like a baby. <laughs> there you go. Um, oh, gosh. But, but, you know, it was so fulfilling. And for me, you know, it feels like it's just the beginning. Um, and I'm just so honored and that people, re- that it was received so well that, you know, I had people from different countries DMing me being like, thank you for this. I, I had some students of mine who were like, I feel like I can finally do something or say something or have this conversation or have the courage to do or do this or do that. So, wow, it was, it was incredible. So, so thank you for letting me share this. Um, you know, it, it, yeah, it was just incredible, an incredible experience. Well, good on you and everyone who participated in it. And like you said, um, it's very strange for us not of color, people of color, as white folk, um, to kind of create a conversation because I think we're a little bit apprehensive of maybe um, stepping on toes, of saying the wrong thing. But I think yeah. all of that is a learning process in itself, too. I mean, I'm one of the stupid people that said the all lives matter. And it's like, okay, I need to educate myself on that pretty quickly. Um, yeah. It's just I, I look at the picture and not the words. It's like, oh, look, there's a brown yeah. and a white and a rainbow and a thing like this. But I, I didn't understand the, the actual what the verbiage meant. I was looking at the picture. So I yeah. really – appreciate you taking the time to come on because I I don't want to stop my voice. I think we all need to be speaking about this all the time, especially allies, but I do want to lower my voice and amplify those that have something to say. So thank you so much for doing that. That's just uh, awesome that you're willing to come on and talk about that. I kind of honestly did not know the best way to do it. So I wanted to reach out to people um, Mm -hmm. that, I want to try to give a voice and you're one of the first yeah. ones to step up to it. And I really appreciate that. And it's just, it's something that we all need to hear. Right. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, I want to go back to what you're saying about this kind of apprehension um, that you have that I think other other white people have or other non-people of color um, have. And, you know, my, my boyfriend is, is white. And I have, like I said, I have a lot of friends who are white and family members who are white. And there is this kind of apprehension. There is this guilt and, and there is this shame. And my kind of response to that is I feel guilt and shame are two emotions that are super hindering. They don't actually help action. I think they're helpful mm-hmm. to, to establish a sense of humility and establish a sense of pause of like, okay, I need to like look a little inward, look at my, what are my actions? What are my behaviors? What are my things, speeches and things that I'm saying? But if it gets too much of like, I'm afraid to do, I'm afraid to do anything or I'm afraid to say something, it's actually hindering. And I think how I feel, how I feel is, um, you know, somebody had asked me, you know, I had, you know, what can I say? What can I say to um, my, my black friends? And I had posted something about a week ago that said, just go check on your black friends and just say, you know, I hear you, I see you, I love you, and I'm here for you. Because something as simple as that doesn't require a response, but, but shows mm. me. When I get those responses, it's like, thank you, because you, you see me. And, and that's, you know, we talk about there are people who, who might say, well, I don't see color. Everyone's created equal. And I think that's that same kind of uh, meaning of when you had said in the past, all lives matter. And right. yes, every human being on this earth, their life matters. Yes. But let's kind of dive into what, what maybe that hashtag means and differentiate between the two. And, and it's like, right. I do see your color. I, I see you. I see you as a black man, or I see you as how you would like to be um, perceived. Um, and I understand that, this world or this nation um, was not built for people who look like you, but I, I, I see your, I want that to be equal for you. I think that's the translation when people say um, black lives matter, right? I, there are a lot of people are like, all lives matter. I'm like, yes, they do. They absolutely do. Um, But just showing and seeing the difference um, of what those quote unquote hashtags mean. Um, and I think, I mean, I invite conversation. I invite questions. I invite discussions. That's the only way, you know, we're, you know, you think about it when you're in school, you know, like history was not my subject at all. I had to ask every question between, <laughs> you know, who, I was like, excuse me, <laughs> to the point where my teachers were like, Nate, if you read the passage, you'll find the answer. And so for me, I was always somebody who wanted to ask questions and wanted to know more. And so I invite every single human being who's listening to ask questions. And even if if you feel that apprehension, to just have that disclaimer of like, I am not trying to have any malice or disrespect. I simply want to know, insert question here, Um, because we're all human, right? We all make mistakes. and. I think I had read something the other day, but by a, um, you know, a a black activist um, and and it read, you know, black people aren't looking for revenge. We're just looking for equality. And so I, I hold, I hold that true. You know, it's like, we're not trying to, in my opinion, 
and what I need. And, and for me as a black person, I'm not looking for revenge. I'm simply looking for equality. And so in those spaces of mistakes of, oh, God, I said the wrong thing, um, or I posted the wrong thing, or I tweeted the wrong thing, having a moment of like, okay, it's a learning experience. That was not my intention. How can I learn from it? I'm not going to be boggled down and anchored down by this uh, quote-unquote white guilt or, or, or shame. I acknowledge my, my, you know, my mistake, and I, and, and I want to move forward. Um, for me, I always think about, well, what's my end goal? Right? My end goal is this sense of equality. My end goal is for people to see my blackness and also see, you know, see its validity and its beauty, um, just like everyone else has their own validity and their own beauty. Um, and so if that means that me as a black person, as a biracial man, need to extend that quote-unquote olive branch to those people that may not know, yeah, I'll do that. Um, if that means I, <laughs> people flock to me asking questions, how do I help? Okay, <laughs> I'll take them. I'll take them in dosages. Dosages, but um, that's what I will do because what's my end goal? And so, you know, I think there are some black people who will say, "Don't ask me. I'm too tired. I'm too exhausted. It's not my responsibility. It is on you." And I think that's valid. I think there. Are, I mean, there's times I'm tired. There's times I'm I'm exhausted. Yeah. Um, but it's like, you know, but, you know, my, my, my four-year-old niece, you know, you, you know, when I, you know, teaching her certain things, you know, of like riding a bike um, or whatever, it's like, yes, right now she's on her training wheels and, you know, I will help her with that, with riding a bike. But as she's getting older, as time is going on, as she's spending more time on those training wheels, I need to step away. And so that same kind of metaphor, I think, applies to um, non-black people, non-people of color in learning and educating themselves about this, that, that you know, eventually you're going to have to, you know, take off those training wheels and do it on your own and be this self-sufficient force. Um, yes, there will be help, I think, along the way. Absolutely. Ask questions. Absolutely. Continue to ask questions. Absolutely. But you're going to eventually have to do it on your own. Right. And I think that's so well said. And I was trying to do the same thing. I'm trying to educate myself as I go through this and listening to lots of different voices. And I think um, I was listening to Wanda Sykes do an Instagram live. And I think she said it very well, where it's like, we as black people are not the ones that are fixed. This is not our problems. We are the victims of the problem. Right. It's up to you white folk to kind right. of, work on the problem. And I, and that kind of really sunk into me. It's like, well, yeah, I guess we are the ones kind of perpetrating this. We need to, to acknowledge that and decide that we are going to fix this as a right. group, but we need to acknowledge that we're going to be the part that's going to fix it. We can't wait and hope for it to happen. Right. 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 Absolutely. And like, I mean, for me, I have said this, um, I, one of my best friends and one of my, one of my roommates is white and we've been friends for years we've danced together and I talked to her earlier today and you know I said to her there was a conversation I said to her years ago and I said um, you know you will be in conversations 
and in moments with other white people where black people are not present. And there are things that are said in between, between white people about black people when black people are not present. And in those mm-hmm. moments and yeah. in those spaces, that's the responsibility in my mind for my friend, for instance, to say something. And it doesn't even have to go as dramatic or as radical as like, you're being a racist. Yeah, because sometimes that's super, you know, um, no one likes to feel attacked saying right. like, being called a racist. So, but there may be some, some rhetoric or there's some jargon or vernacular used that is insensitive or disrespectful. But in those spaces, white people can say, hey, um, that thing you just said, can we talk about it? For instance, the hashtag all lives matter. I think if someone brings that up, I think that's a responsibility of like, hey, I think I know what you're saying or meaning by this, but like, let me help you um, dive into it because right now the way you're saying it is slightly insensitive or disrespectful. And let, let, me, let me help you get to what you're actually trying to say. And I think that is, that is a big responsibility. And that is actually something that black people just can't even do. That's a very small example. But there are other right. examples where, you know, even though I am biracial, even though, like, I see my mom, she's one color, and my dad, he's another color, even though I am biracial, I am perceived to be black, period. And I say that I am black as I say I am white, as I say I'm biracial, but there are spaces and conversations that I just will never be a part of because of the perception that people have of my race. So right. it's like white, white people have that responsibility in those spaces around other white people to, you know, initiate um, that conversation, to initiate that dialogue. And it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't need to be um, like an investigation or an, an, or an attack. You know, I, there are different avenues and channels. I believe in positivity. I, I, I believe you get more with honey than you, than you do with vinegar. That's my whole philosophy. Um, but I think that is, that, yes, there is, there are moments, there are spaces where, where white people will have the responsibility to, in a sense, step up. That, unfortunately, black people just cannot then, and will not, will not ever be a part of those moments. Um, so, right. yeah, I agree with you. Okay. I agree with that. Well said. Well, give me your perception on the feeling of this 10 days in. I mean, so often any issue is such a flavor of the month, right? You talk about it for three to four (laughs) days and it dies down. It's seeming like this may be a tipping point, but you never know. What's your perception of this right now? I I mean, I think if you ask any black person, it's like, you know, the feeling feels the same, you know, if they say it, when, Mm. when you hear about George, when you hear about Brianna, when you hear about Ahmad, when you hear about Trayvon, when you hear about Sandra, when you, the list goes on and on and on. And when you hear about another one, it feels the same of this blanket of dread and fear and anger and frustration. So it's like, you know, it's not new to me, <laughs> but right. it, um, there is something different about George, about the situation with George. 
And, you know, I have my, you know, beliefs. I think, you know, everything comes in threes. Um, There was first, you know, Ahmad and then Brianna and then George within such a short amount of time. That could be something, I think, because of the video, which I could not bring myself to watch in its um, uh, fullness. Um, I Mm. think because George was in a sense, well, it was unarmed and detained and for, you know, X amount of minutes was in that position. And that police officer did not care what happened to him was a clear sign that one human being saw another human being as less than a human being. That in that moment we saw the dehumanization from a white cop to a black man. And I think with the technology right now and where we are in 2020, technology makes things viral, makes things happen fast and accessible um, and urgent. And I think, you know, everyone who saw that video was like, absolutely not. (laughs) And, right. you know, and, you know, we don't have a video for Brianna, right? I, we hear about what happened and we hear about the story and it's heart wrenching and it's, and it's mm, disgusting, yes. but we had this video with George and we saw the, in this, in, in real time, the life leave this man. And right. I think everyone, every human being on this planet was like, absolutely not. Um, and I think it was like just a click and maybe because we're in, you know, this, this COVID times where people are, are less in a sense distracted from their lives, from their work, from their activities, from all these, you know, all these other things where it was this kind of ugly recipe for, to highlight this ongoing and, and systemic issue. Um, so Yes, for me, I feel like this is, um, it has so much momentum, and it doesn't seem like it's lighting up, um, letting up anytime soon, and I think it's really, it's, it's getting a part of our economy, which I think, you know, money is power, and so, you know, these initiatives about disbanding police um, for greater um, kind of safety protocols, um, using, you know, having mental health be in a forefront for these kind of moments of conflict, um, it, things are really shifting. And it, it feels like this is the beginning of something. Um, and I don't want to get too political because I know a lot of people feel certain ways about, you know, when it comes to race and politics and, <laughs> and religion. But, you know, Think about what's going to happen in November. You know, like things are really pulling. Um, I don't know. <laughs> and I think, you know, I, I think it's like people are, people are like enough is enough. I think black people have been saying that. And I think non-black people are like, I'm like, sorry that I didn't hear you before. Like, okay, like enough is enough. Um, so I, I feel, part of me feels um, that this will ignite something greater, something bigger, 
something revolutionary. It is my hope and something that I pray about that it is not just a trending topic. Um, that in a few weeks, you know, or, you know, a month, um, you know, people start shifting what they're talking about. People start posting more about their bread recipes and what they're going to wear to the nearest <laughs> concert. You know, you're like, your bread right. recipe doesn't need to be on my feed right now. Like, you can write that in your notes section on your iPhone. Um, but, you know, <laughs> so that's my hope. And I, I believe in, in glass half full. Um, and, you know, I believe in putting the good energy out there that, you know, but for me also too, I have to put in the work. We have to put in the work. We have to put in the work that it's not going to be just a trending issue. Um, having these conversations, making change in work in workplaces, you know, uh, making change in our education, educational systems. Um, so that's how I feel. I think it's really going to become something and I hope and pray that it, it's, it stays and it sticks. Um, but we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Right. No, I agree 100%. Like I said, I, I wanted to get your – I'm seeing the same thing um, in different ways. I definitely think timing is an issue. I think people mm-hmm. were home. People were watching mm-hmm. more television and had, to, had yep. to watch television and see what was going on. Yeah. I yeah. think that um, – I have a lot of friends that are quote unquote activists, I guess I'll say, especially being from the LGBT community. And we'll talk about that, your confluence of that uh-huh. as well. Uh-huh. But um, I know a lot of activists and this is something where I'm seeing the momentum really pull, not just from, from people of color, but I have a lot of white friends that sit on the couch, dude, all the time and don't mm-hmm. do anything, but I'm seeing mm-hmm. people actually going out and marching. And yes. I think that it's really brought up a lot of people you look at everything on tv and i think we're seeing a lot of white advocates out on the streets marching i think Mm -hmm. when they cleared those peaceful protesters for him to do a photo op was hugely important to see those videos and those visuals and i i feel the same way i'm feeling that i think this might happen interesting thing i heard that when they did the nine days or whatever of civil unrest right before the civil and the civil rights act was passed on the 10th day um, after Uh those nine days of unrest at the time. And now we're on 10 days and we have at least the Democrats proposing changes today in legislature. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think things might actually get done, but it's still, as you said, you say that you, you can't stop, but I think it goes back to what we were just talking about before. Yeah. You have always talked about it. We can't stop as allies. Right. White, black, right. brown, indifferent. We're the ones right. who can't stop. Um, right. Because you've been saying this the entire time, right? This is something that's yeah. nothing new, but we yeah. need to amplify our voices now for the, in our workplaces, in your workplaces. And I hope this is a tipping point of some kind. But I, I like I said, I want to get your perspective, and I appreciate that. And I, I hope we're both feeling the same thing. Let's talk Absolutely. about the confluence of being both black and LGBT. We're celebrating Pride Month or trying to this month. It was already going to be uh-huh. weird virtually. Yep. <laughs> and now we have this on top of it. 
I'm interested to see how this is going to come together because it's not always been the easiest marriage of comparing um, equality from Black Lives Matter and LGBT issues. And there is some stark differences, of course. Right. Um, Do you feel that that might bring this together a little bit more? Because there has been some stark differences in the past. I mean, I I think so, and I hope so. I think – it's it's you think about like the underdogs and I think like minorities are, are just are are underdogs and I think there is this um you know league of their own, league of our own, um of underdogs, of minorities and and people of the you know, gay community. It, it, we are they are we are minorities as well. Um and so I think there is I hope that there is this marriage of like, you know, I stand with you, um, as you stand with me, um, you know, I think that's like with black people who are homophobic, like that doesn't work <laughs> for me, you know, or, who are, or there are, there are gay people who, who are racist. You're like, what? Like that makes, what? No sense right. to me. Um, you know, and I think there is an, an, an importance to recognize the difference between the discrimination between these two, um, minority groups, whereas, you know, Definitely. this nation was kind of founded and created not for a specific color of person. Right. And, you know, it goes all the way back to slavery where black people were not even considered human. We were considered property. So we're like 0% a human being. And then right. Jim Crow comes along and now we're three-fifths of a human being, still not fully one, but three fifths of them. And then finally, we, we are kind of free, quote unquote, free. And now we are considered hu- a human, a, a human being. However, thinking about the psychological um, kind of events of that and how, how that kind of trickles down that sense of uh, thinking that one color is less than another color for so long, and then it gets passed down over and over, generation after generation. Now we're in 2020. There is still racism, and there's still cultural right. appropriation towards Black culture, and there's still systemic racism. Clearly, right? You think about the socioeconomic parts of it. You think about um, living conditions. You think about lack of education. All of these things. So it is embedded in our country. And then, yes, there are, you know, the the gay community who also did not have and do not have rights here or there. We talk about our our trans uh, brothers and sisters. They also, you know, are are fighting for their equal rights. But there is, I I was, you know, there is a difference um, looking at the um, foundation of this country and how that relates to black people. Um, and how that relates to to gay people, to to the gay community. Right. Um, so for me, you know, I I am both. The, I'm I got one foot in one and one foot in the other. <laughs> so it, it, I love that. I'm like, oh, cool. It's not like it's a membership, but it's like, oh, I'm cool. I'm like all part of all these things. But I think it's the sense of the bridge, right? Like I feel like I am a bridge between uh, white people and and black people because of my parents. Um, you know, I do believe I am a bridge between the gay community and and the, you know, heteronormative community because 
there are friends that I have that are not of the gay community. So and then I need to make sure that I surround myself with um, this kind of eclectic group of people um, to build these bridges. But I think there is some discrimination between the gay community. Um, you know, I think, uh, my opinion, I think about, you know, how we talk about ourselves. You know, are you part of, you know, are you a twink? Are you a bear? Are you a um, a jock? Are you a, all these things? Even that kind of mindset and that kind of verbiage is is kind of, shaping us into these kind of subcultures. And I think right. what we need to be thinking of is like, I think it's less about how can we separate ourselves and how can we come together, you know, and think about, you know, um, on Stonewall, you know, like it wasn't just white people who were there. Um, it doesn't, it wasn't just white men who were there, you know, I think you, and I think trying to, the way we talk about it is like we are all fighting under the same roof for the same thing, but acknowledging the differences that we have and acknowledging that our experience is different. And not to say that our experience, that my experience as a black gay man is different than a white lesbian in her 40s. Absolutely not. I'm not trying to say that at all. I am simply right. saying that our experiences are different um, and that, and both of those experiences are valid. Now, not one's not going to go on that side of the room and one's not going to go on the other side of the room. No, I can sit right next to you and we can have a conversation. We can be fighting for the same things. We can be talking about the same things. Hell, we can even disagree on things. That's fine. But the acknowledgement that someone else's experience is valid and that knowing that obviously your own is, is different and valid. That's how I feel. I mm -hmm. think, um, you know, it's, it's, it's going to take, it's going to take all of us. And I think the gay community, um, we are colorful and we are vibrant and we are loud and it is beautiful. And I think, um, that community, our community, um, you know, can and can and will, um, support support this Black Lives Matter movement um, in all of its complexities. There you go. I got to tell you, I uh, stopped my show last Wednesday. I did, I did my show Monday and Tuesday, and Tuesday was uh -huh. the hardest show for me. And I think what broke me was seeing all of the New York healthcare workers standing outside the hospital mm. clapping for the protesters. So that reverse wow. thing just like yes. that just totally broke me. Um, <laughs> It's like, yeah, we, we we are maybe getting this. It may happen. Yeah. So I felt very I, good about that last week. It was it was an incredible yeah. sight to see. And I think that's the that's the thing that I um I believe is going to make the changes. Um, you know, is the acknowledgement, like right then and there of like I see you right, like when I said, you know, earlier when we were talking, it's like how white people can uh, reach out to black people. It's simply like, I see you, I hear you, and I'm, and I'm here for you. And I think that example of the essential workers applauding the protesters is like, I hear you, I see you, and I thank you. 
and that doesn't take away any experience, any validity from those essential workers. Right, exactly. Well, let's build on that. I want to get in a little bit of your bio because we got to brag on you and all the amazing things you've done <laughs> in dance and your own career. Uh-huh. But let's talk okay. about, um, let's kind of bring this together now. Besides that, conversations we need to have of support with our mm-hmm. fellow um, black and people of color's friends, what else should we be doing right now to help all of us educate each other? What recommendations do you have? I, um, I think, you know, there are a lot of literature out there. Um, I think there is a lot of, um, you know, people love books. There's a lot of books. There's TV shows. There are movies. There are podcasts. Um, there is art. There are businesses. Um, so I think your, your input, I think it's an important to surround your, yourself with input and education, um, whether that's fiction or nonfiction. And so I think there's a lot of literature that, that can be read. There's that. I think, um, of course, looking at your social circle and getting a vibrancy of color in your social, social circle, if, there's, if everyone looks the same, you're all going to get kind of the same um, kind of advice and the same way of thinking. Broaden that, you know, join a different group, join a different hobby that's of different colors and races to start thinking differently, start to start uh, responding differently. Um, of course, yes, having those conversations, having those conversations um, in white-only spaces that kind of happen, um, I, I, I'm a firm kind of believer in that. Um, but I think also too, it's like, you know, for parents out there, you know, calling, calling your, your schools, calling your principals, calling PTAs and, and saying, I need, um, a diverse, um, faculty for my child's education, Mm -hmm. because yes, you know, we are people who are older, you know, it's like, we know that's something that we can do, but how's it going to stick? Yeah, it's this younger generation. We have to be teaching them, and we have to be showing them um, what's, what's going on and, and why it's wrong and how can we fix it. And a simple thing is like calling your school and be, and, and, or looking at your faculty um, at that school. And if they're all one color, call that principal and say, I need an Asian – I need an, an Asian uh, of descent in that school. I need a black – uh, teacher in that school because thinking about um, you know for for the youth they need to see people of different colors and of, and being taught by people of different colors and people of different races um, so there's kind of a lot of action steps <laughs> um, and <laughs> I think it, it's and I think it kind of goes back to um, you know, you were saying about protesters, and I think some people use their bodies and, and voice to protest. And I think that's, I, I believe in peaceful protest, and I think that's incredible. Some people may not have that capacity, and that's okay. There are different avenues for change. And I think um, I was saying this to um, a, 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 a little girl today when she had messaged me about my weekend is that you have to find your own journey for change. And right. it, it, it should feel like this buffet, right? Like 
fill up your, you know, with the unlimited steak and unlimited mac and cheese and get your biscuits on the side, like all of that. <laughs> like your, your sense of advocacy is not just signing one petition and calling it a day. Or maybe it's not even signing all the petitions. Like I think it's because we will get numb to that. We will burn out from that. Like add all these right. different things of advocacy on your plate. And if you don't know how, ask. If you don't know how, Google. Um, there, there is no excuse to not know anymore. We are in a time where information is so accessible. All it takes is one step. Then you take another step. Then you take a third step. And all of a sudden, you're, you're walking. And then you speed up a little bit, and then you're running. So it, 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 just, it has to start with you. It has to start with one, one thing at a time. That would be what I, I say to that. Well said, my friend. We will give some links <laughs> to your profile where they can find it. I've added links on my uh, profile as well on social media where they can find information. So we'll give that at the end. Let's talk about your journey into your self-discovery as far as your talent. What was the initial attraction to dance? Tell me about where this came from, and talk about what kind of a kid were you when you grew up that kind of fostered this. Yeah, so I have an older sister. Um, her name is Danielle, and she's three years older than me. And ever since we were younger, anything she did, I wanted to do. I was her own personal <laughs> shadow. I was like, she would put me in dresses. I was like, whatever you want. She was my very first best friend. <laughs> And, you know, she played tennis, I played tennis. She played basketball, I played basketball. She did taekwondo, I did taekwondo. And she did dance, and so I did dance. And I, and I just, for me, growing up, it was just this fun kind of hobby that I got to do with my best friend. And we would um, put on these, like, mini performances for our parents. God bless them. They had to watch through all of those awful, awful performances, I'm sure. Um, and you know, when I had went to, was growing up and, uh, I went to my middle school and was kind of dancing in the dance club there, but again, just would come home and, and create these dances with my sister. I didn't really think anything of it. It wasn't until I was in high school. Um, I went to a Glen Burnie high school, a normal, you know, public high school, no magnet school, no private school. And it was at that high school where my teacher at the time, Diane Rosso, had this dance program that had 500 dance students within it. And she created this program called Dance of the Athlete, with, which was to create, just to have a dance class for athletes. You didn't have to be this like prima ballerina. It was for Joe Schmo on the soccer field and, you know, Lacey Lou on the lacrosse field. And in nice. that, in those classes, I like just lit up. I was like, I was, I was dancing and as many as I could. And then I, um, you know, I, Miss Rosso gave me the opportunity to choreograph for her classes that had, mind you, like 35 students in them. So I was this like sophomore little kid who was like teaching dance to these like football players and these like soccer people. And I was like, okay, here we go. <laughs> so nice. I was able to kind of foster this, um, 
beginning stages of my my sense of education and, and teaching. But Miss Rosso kind of give, gave me this flyer for a dance studio. She said, go take this class. And I was like, okay. And that was kind of the first dance studio I went to, and it was so welcoming and warm and inviting. And so that's kind of how I kind of transitioned into and started with dance and how it kind of, it felt like one door opened in another. And through that dance studio, I went to New York City for the very first time when I was 16. I actually came out when I was here uh, for my very first visit um, in Washington Square Park. Um, And I remember I came back. Uh, to Maryland, and I was going to start living my truth, and was like, I'm going to move to New York City when I graduate high school, and sure enough, did, and I and I went to Long Island University, which was a small, intimate program, which I felt like I got everything I needed, and, you know, eventually I went on to the Ailey School, which is the kind of dance school for the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, the right. dance company, um, was there for a year, and at the end of that year was fortunate to be invited to audition for the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater and the second company called Ailey 2. And I made it to the end of the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater um, audition with about nine, ten other gentlemen. And then the following day was Ailey 2. And then I got Ailey 2 that year. So it was my very first professional <laughs> contract. And wow. I... And, and yeah, it's, it seems very serendipitous. And I'm like, okay, whoever is looking out for me, thank you, Lord, thank you, God, thank you, whatever. Um, <laughs> but it, 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 it really set my career up being able to dance in that company. I had traveled um, to France and Germany and Spain and um, across in, in Hawaii and and across. Uh, thoroughly throughout the nation um, with for and with this predominantly kind of black dance company and um, just the exposure that, that God, I, I, (laughs) the best story I ever have of me dancing was um, the company Ailey two. We were assigned to go to Hanover, Germany um, to dance for the Hanover Messi, which is kind of this kind of celebration of art and technology. And it was very um, secretive. We couldn't really tell where, I couldn't even tell my mom where I was going. And we were like, (laughs) that must mean there's a very, and you know, my mom's like, where are you going? I want to know, like, what's your airline? All this stuff. I was like, mom, I cannot tell you. And she's like, okay, you better tell me when you land. Um, And I, you know, we were saying, people in the company were like, well, you know, why can't we tell any, you know, what's going on, what's going on? We were thinking there must be a very high profile person at this event. We get to the event, you know, we know that we're going to be dancing um, this end section of Alvin Ailey's masterpiece revelations called uh, Rock of My Soul. We know we're going to do that. We're like, okay, so it's, you know, there's some culture in this. All right. Um, lo and behold, we found out that President Barack Obama was going to be watching us dance. And I (laughs) was like, are you kidding me? Um, And so here I I was in a foreign country in Germany dancing with Ailey 2, which is the second company for the world-renowned Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, 
a the most famous modern dance work, Revelations, for the very first black president of the United States. I That's was hard to top. speechless. <laughs> I was oh like, goodness. cool, okay. Um, so it was incredible. I there's a video out that I have on my on that, that I have on my website and I have uh, kind of floated around. I am elated. I am smiling so big. I was like, this is it. This is it. Um, to, to, to feel that and to have that experience to, to dance for him in this, you know, in a sense, black company. Um, so, you know, from there, from Ailey, I had danced, uh, Ailey too, I had danced with another dance company, uh, Ballet Hispanico, and moved on to company XIV, which is company 14, which is this kind of off-Broadway Baroque burlesque um, kind of singing, dancing theater show, um, which eventually got me to the Metropolitan Opera. And I just finished my second season uh, with the Met. So it's, it seems very serendipitous how everything kind of happened. Um, but, but yeah, that's, that's kind of where I'm at. That's how I, <laughs> I blame my sister. It's her fault. <laughs> there you go. Oh, my gosh. That's such an amazing story. And serendipity only works with the work behind it, my friend, and you have put in oh, I love that. the work. So <laughs> oh, thank congratulations. you. That is awesome. And that million dollar smile of yours has got you in some print modeling <laughs> and music videos and stuff like yeah. that. Talk about um, what's some of your dream things, what's on your bucket list you'd still like to see yourself accomplish either through dance or other uh, venues as well. Wow. Um, wow. I mean, I feel like I am still on this, like, okay, what's next? What are we doing? And I think this past weekend doing this fundraiser really made me feel a, a different purpose that all of my dancing, mm-hmm. that all, that my career, that even it goes down to the heartbreaks <laughs> from the, you know, from these men that I've dated uh, has created this resiliency. So I feel like I'm at this precipice for something bigger and something greater and that might mean with dance and that might not mean with dance. I think dance will always be a part of my life. Um, so I think for me, I would love to, I think a bullet point, a kind of, uh, you know, a, a, a bucket list would be, I would love to be in spaces. I would, I, I would love to be in spaces where kind of people want to kind of hear me speak about experiences and like how to create change and, and whether those are in like conferences or, or more podcasts or um, performances, I would love to be in those. I would love to be in spaces where I could get more people to hear what I have to say. And because not to say that it's, that it's better than somebody else's, but I think I do have, um, a voice, and I think I do have uh, things that I believe in that are helpful, um, that are peaceful, that are kind, that are um, accessible, and I, I would love to be in more spaces for that. I would love to be in spaces where change happens, um, and that can be, you know, in, in a dance studio, in a classroom um, with students. Uh, I, I, yeah, maybe or in, you know, at Barclay Center, you know, being, talking to Oprah, you know, <laughs> I think you in, in either of those spaces, 
granted, I would love to meet Oprah and I would love to meet Michelle Obama. I read her book and I loved it. So that might be a bucket list um, <laughs> bullet point to, to be in the same room as either one of those two ladies because of the brilliance they have, the amount of articulation they have, and the, the power they have to command the room and command attention. I would love to sit and listen uh, to them. That, that, would be a, 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 that would be one for sure. <laughs> well, you are on your way there yourself, my friend, coming to a TED Talk near you guys and gals. Be look out for <laughs> Nate Hunt. That is for damn sure. Nate, it's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure getting to talk to you. We're going to have to have you back and go to more depth about your career and everything. And anytime you have anything to discuss, you are welcome back on the show, my friend. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to all the listeners. Um, you know, it, it means so much. And uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. No problem. Let everyone know where they can find you. Give them your social media, your website, and Guys, keep an eye on this young man. He is going places, and his speeches are going to take us places. So let us know where they can find you, Nate. Yeah, thank you. Um, so my website is www.nathanieljhunt.com. Nathaniel is N-A-T-H-A-N-I-E-L, jhunt.com. And my social media is nathanielhunt underscore. Super simple, super easy. Um, yeah, and, and follow along the journey. Um, any input, I love it. And, uh, yeah, thank, thank you so much. You are very welcome. We're going to end on a goofy note because I do like to embarrass my guests whenever I can, especially when Great. you set I me up. It. And since we, <laughs> I did see your website, and I love your website, one of my favorite uh -huh. things whenever I have entertainers on my show is if they put the resume on their website and they have special skills – I have to go for it. So I need a whistle out of you because whistling is a special skill. What can you do to prove this right for me? Okay. I, so I, I don't know if it's going to be too loud. So I learned this like um, uh, years ago in elementary school. Um, you know, people can whistle with one hand. I have to do it with two. But I don't know if it's going to be too loud, but I can totally do it for you now. Um, so here it goes. Three, two, one. There you go. I like it. You have just you've stopped the A train. It'll be waiting for you. There, my friend. Perfect. Awesome. All right, Nate Hunt, stay on the line for me, guys. We'll be back in a little bit. We're going to play a little musical break. When I come back, we'll be doing our Monday musical minute with our good friend Zach Day from The Voice. You're listening to Left the Straight Show right here on the Left the Straight Radio Network.
Just another prodigal son Destined to leave it all behind He'll leave you in the dark Well, he's getting lost in the light guys and gals we are back that was our buddy matt stern from canada with wanderer guys we're gonna get right into our musical minute with our special correspondent zach day he was also busy raising money this weekend he did it with his fellow voice contestants from season 18 and zach brought a very special guest with him they were singers from his distilled theater company back in tennessee and they did a fantastic uh, rendition of the Color Purple reprise. Um, so we're going to go ahead and let Zach play. And he's going to feature Chrislyn Love as soloist, Rashana Campbell, Navji Dixon, Cole Campbell, Courtney Campbell, and Jessica Green as pianist. So thank you guys very much for that. We appreciate you letting me play your song here that helped raise some money this weekend. Here's Zach Day. I'll be back on the other side in just a few minutes. Hey, friends and family of the Left of Straight Show. This is Zach here all the way from Nashville, Tennessee. Look, a lot has happened in the past couple weeks since I've been on, so I just wanted to take a moment to say Uh, Thank you all for working really hard to raise awareness for Black Lives Matter. Um, That's something that I wanted to make sure that I brought up today on my Music Minute. I wanted to go ahead and make sure that we promote the Black Lives Matter movement. As far as I'm concerned, uh, I've been working really hard alongside a lot of people back here to raise awareness and continue to fight for justice and equality 
And recently, uh, my friends and I from The Voice Season 18 got together and did a live fundraiser on Instagram to raise funds for the Black Lives Matter movement. And I wanted to make sure that you guys know that that's still available to watch and the donation is still up. So you guys can still go over there. Um, the link is in my bio, and you guys can go donate to the Black Lives Matter movement or GoFundMe. And you can also still watch the performers that we had on. Um, I actually brought on my friends from the Distilled Theater Company in Lexington, Kentucky, to perform and raise money for the Black Lives Matter movement, and it went really well, and they just sounded so amazing. So this week, for my music minute, I just wanted to focus mostly on the Black Lives Matter movement and what we're trying to do, which is raise funds, raise awareness, and make sure that we're speaking out against inequality and injustice. So that's all that I have for you guys this week. Go ahead and check out the fundraiser that we did over on Instagram and hope that you guys are staying safe and staying healthy, and I'm sending all my love. Thank you guys for all coming together for this amazing cause. Um, you know, the reason we're here today is to raise funds for the Black Lives Matter movement. And um, when I was asked by Jamal if I wanted to participate in this, of course I wanted to. I think it's important for all of us, especially now with the platforms that uh, many of us have been awarded from being on The Voice. Um, right now is the time for us to speak up for injustice. And, you know, we, we need to make sure that we're using our platforms for good. When they asked me, I wanted to extend the offer to my friends and family who are black. So I have brought some of my friends from the Distill Theater Company in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, these are featured artists that have uh, that work through the company. I'm going to introduce my friends and family from Distill Theater Company, and they're going to be singing for you guys today. So hope you enjoy it. Hi. Zach, thank you so much for allowing us this platform to be able to be heard and to be seen. Um, and thank you so much for your allegiance and setting in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm. We can't thank you enough. We are really glad to be here and to and just to share our art. We are so grateful to, to have had a platform working with the Steel Theater Company who who is intentional about providing quality theater and, and incorporating diverse groups of people using color conscious casting. I think that is one of the practices that, that sets us apart mm -hmm. from a lot of other um, organizations in the community. So we're grateful for them. Grateful, so grateful just to be able to, to share our art and do what we love with such supporting producers and artistic directors.
Okay, guys, you can head over to my Instagram at you know Zach. I'll have the link there in my bio. That's where you can go to donate to the fundraiser that we did this weekend on Instagram Live. Uh, thank you guys so much, and I hope to hear from you soon. Stay safe, stay healthy, and, yeah, much love. Hey, thank you, Zach. Appreciate that, and a big shout-out to the artist at Distilled Theater Company. That was amazing. Thank you for letting us share that and Left to Straight Radio. Guys, we got one last interview for you today. We got my new buddy, Tommy Atkins, who called me all the way from the UK, Northeast England last week. He's an amazing singer, songwriter, country artist. We're going to chat with him now, play a couple of his songs. I'll be back to wrap it up in just a few moments. You're listening to the Left of Straight show right here on the Left of Straight Radio Network.
Wild in the Wind, who just happens to be my next guest here. He's coming to us from the UK. I'm so excited to welcome him to the show for the very first time. He's a singer-songwriter who's had chart-topping hits in both the UK, Canada, and New Zealand with his single Cinderella's Had a Drink, one of the best names ever. He's released a cover of Wham's Freedom recently that has definitely made his own, adding fiddle, steel, and harmonies it's a haunting country ballad. I love the way that it's come out. And he sang from an openly gay perspective, changing the pronouns as well, which I absolutely loved. His hope is to be an open and positive representative for the LGBTQ community and country music, which is where we've been finding so many great artists lately. I can't wait to hear his story and share him with you. Please welcome to the Straight Show for the very first time, Mr. Tommy Atkins. Tommy, how you doing, buddy? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me, Scott, and thank you for that wonderful introduction as well. It's uh, not too often you get to hear about yourself like that, so that was really cool. (laughs) Well, you've done some amazing things to be proud of, and I really enjoy your music. I'm glad we were able to reach out to each other. We kind of had a kismet thing going on. We saw each other at the same time, and I am so glad to have you on, even from across the pond. You sound clear as heck, and I love it. (laughs) Yeah. It's um it's a lovely day over here in northeast England, which makes a change. It's usually raining, very grim. Um, and I'm absolutely delighted to be on today, Scott. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Tell me how you've been keeping yourself busy the past couple of months. I mean, we're living in these crazy times now. Are you able um, to make some music, to uh, do a little Netflix plunging, to have a little time at home, or is that just the first hour <laughs> you're doing it on repeat? yeah um my plans for this summer have kind of been upended so i was supposed to be touring from the start of may until september um but over here in the uk we're we're still on quite a severe lockdown so all of those plans have kind of been scuppered so i'm kind of been using the time to promote freedom my latest single and um at the press and at radio stations as well around the world now um, but I'm also getting to to write with people again. I haven't had a whole lot of time to to songwrite recently, um, just with going into single cycles and stuff. You know, it just absolutely consumes your time. So it's been nice right. to slow down and reconnect with some of my favorite co-writers and just take time to be creative. Um, but yes, definitely Netflix binging and Amazon Prime video as well. They've they've come up with some great series. <laughs> There you go. There is some good stuff out there. That is for sure. Awesome. Well, let's start with a little bit of background. Let the listeners know you say you are um, from UK. Tell them about where you're from. Tell them what kind of a kid were you? And did you always want to do music or what did you first want to be when you grew up? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, yeah, I'm from Northeast England, um, kind of a smallish town on the coast. And I was a really shy kid. I was not one of these kids in, you know, like school productions or anything like that. And musically, I was quite a late bloomer. So I didn't really pick up a guitar until I was about 15 or 16 years old. 
And I fell in love with country music as a kid. So once I picked up a guitar and started to learn those songs, just naturally I started to write country music, um, which I did for a good few years. I went to college, I studied um, English literature. And right through that time, music was kind of my number one thing. That's when I come out of college, I was like, you know what, I've got to pursue this. And this is what I've wanted to do for quite a while now. So I've just kind of went after it for the last, wow, six or seven years. Um, I primarily wanted to be a songwriter. So um, I was pitching my music to music publishers out in Nashville um, for my songs to be recorded by other artists. But when I was out, actually out in Nashville a couple of years ago, I just got some really great feedback from my songs, particularly the ones that were sung from an open gay perspective. And I figured, you know, we don't really have too many representatives in country music that are singing openly gay lyrics. And so I was like, ah, screw it. Like, <laughs> I might as well try and do it. Um, and that's kind of where I'm at now. Um, so it's been quite a gradual process for me. You know, I, in country music, it seems like nowadays people are coming out of the gate at 17, 18 years old with hits. But you know, I'm, right. I'm knocking on 30 now. So, um, <laughs> I'm kind of like, yeah. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, I'm just so excited to to get the music out there and to be connecting with people on this level. There you go. Well, it's all about the talent, my friend, and you definitely have it, uh, the songwriting ability and the voice. Um, I do want to talk for a second before we get into your music. Let's talk about it. You are definitely out and proud, which I absolutely love. I want to talk about when did you first come out to yourself and when did you kind of first find your own LGBT tribe? Right. You know, I always feel like I don't have kind of a story with this. I think it was a very gradual realization for me through my teens. Um, I didn't really have a big sit down with my parents or anything. I have a very accepting family. Um, and just as I started to, you know, to have boyfriends and stuff, that was kind of how it just, it just kind of naturally came up. I didn't, compared to a lot of people I know who, you know, had to have the sit down chat with the parents and stuff. I, I never really had that. Um, but yeah, it was kind of a, just a gradual process of realizing who I was. And I guess during college, you know, you kind of, you get to meet people from all different walks of life. You know, I'm from quite a, just a working class town, as I say, quite a, a smallish town. Um, I wasn't right. really exposed to too many different kinds of lifestyles or people. Um, so once I kind of went to college and then went traveling for a bit, that was kind of when I started to to meet people who you know were like-minded and who lived an openly gay life. Um, and from there, it's just kind of felt so natural and comfortable to you know talk about it openly and have that be part of my professional life as well. That is great. Fantastic. Well, talk to me about this country music perspective. I mean, I'm just a silly American guy over here. I didn't even think country music might be popular in Britain for some reason. Tell me what kind of a scene there is in the UK for country music and what drew you to that genre originally? Yeah, I mean, as a kid, I heard artists like Shania Twain, uh, Garth Brooks, Martine McBride, who my parents would play. There was kind of a little phase in the 90s where country was all the rage in the UK. So I heard artists like that growing up but I also heard Carrie Underwood on American Idol, which would be maybe six, 15, 16 years ago now, singing songs like the Dixie Chicks. And that was when I really fell in love with country music. And being a millennial, I could just go online and every country music album ever was at my 
kind of at my fingertips through uh, through laptops and computers. Um, but yeah, over here in the UK, I think in the last couple of years, country music has really became part of the mainstream again. As I say, there was like a little phase in the 90s where country music was big. And in the 70s, people like Johnny Cash and Tammy Wynette were everybody. They were just household names in the UK. Um, okay. But over the last few years, it's kind of picked up again. And we have a lot more UK country artists who are having great success over here. People like the Shires and Twinney. Um, and country radio in the UK has taken off. So... We've got country music festivals popping up all around the UK. It's definitely becoming, as I say, a lot more mainstream. Um, I think a lot of the artists who identify as country over here probably sing what Americans would class pop music. Um, uh, <laughs> maybe like folk a little bit. Um, but then right. again, I guess the top 40 on country radio at the minute does sound like a pop radio station. But um yeah, I think it's it's a bit of a melting pot at the minute. People, like, it's still finding this identity, but it's great to have, as I say, kind of a handful of artists breaking through and having great radio success and starting to break international success as well. Fantastic. And that's what I like about your music. I mean, you do have pop, quote-unquote, popular lyrics, but it's sang in a very distinct country tone. I love that you're adding the fiddles, the steel, and everything. It really does have a country feel to it as opposed to a pop feel to it. Is that an intentional thing on your part? Yeah, definitely. I'm so glad you said that. Um, I think my lyrics do have a, a pop tendency, but I always try to tell a story through my lyrics and for them to be relatable for people. But uh, musically, I've always loved fiddle and steel guitar. As I said, one of our biggest influences was the Dixie Chicks growing up. So whenever we go into the studio, I want to always figure out how to to bring in those sounds that I absolutely love and just bring these songs to life in, in the country genre. Very, very nice. I like that. All right. Let's go through <laughs> some of your music. I want to start here. You have three great singles uh, that are predominantly being featured right now. Let's start at the beginning I believe Wild in the Wind was has a sad orange. It's about a friend passing, but talk to me about the song. It's a beautiful lyrics and so well sung. Talk about how that song came to you. And for those of you that don't know, we'll give you his YouTube later because he does have the full story behind the songs. But give my listeners a little Reader's Digest version. Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, as you picked up on there, um, a good friend of mine passed away a couple of years ago. And I really wanted to write something that would just kind of raise a glass to our friendship. You know, we went through most of life together. We were friends from being, I don't know, maybe six or seven years old. And I wanted to write something that obviously dealt with the grief I was going through at the time, but just something that I could sing and reflect on all the great memories I had with him. Um, I think it's so easy to get bogged down in kind of that dark grief. And for me, I always try to find the positive in things. So I think it's kind of it's come out as a bit of a bittersweet lyric. And I kind of ha- I had this chorus written, but I took it into a, a writing session with a dear friend of mine called Anna Pearson, who lives over in Nashville. And we just wrote this song in literally about 20 minutes. It just came out so quickly. And um, it, it's just such a lovely song for me to sing, because as I say, I get to think of my friend every time I talk about it or hear it and perform it live. So um yeah, it's kind of a beautiful thing in my life now. 
I bet, sure. I mean, what a great way to honor him, too. I love that. Very, very oh. nice. And then, I mean, just the title alone, Cinderella's Had a Drink. Um, <laughs> a lot of fun. Talk about the inspiration there and uh, a little bit of the story behind that song. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is such a fun one to write and a fun one to record as well because um, – Michael Cleveland played the fiddle on it and just absolutely brought it to life. It was so fun. Um, but yeah, this was actually inspired by another friend of mine who I used to go out with drinking a lot. And she would always end the night with one shoe less than she started with. Like she was one of those girls who was just a hot mess every time we went out. So I nicknamed her Cinderella. And when I was in Nashville, I was listening to a lot of 90s country music and this idea for Cinderella's How to Drink just kind of came out, again, super quick, actually. This was another one that that was written very quickly in the moment. Um, but, yeah, it's just kind of a super fun song about that. <laughs> very, very nice. So they're all, like I said, so fun, so catchy. But we got to talk about Freedom and George Michael. Um, mm. Such an influence on both of our countries. Songwriting, top-notch. What was your first introduction to George Michael and talk about what his music has meant to you? Yeah, I, so I was born in the nineties and my parents were, you know, teenagers in the eighties. So eighties pop music was always played in my house. So Wham's greatest hits was one of the first CDs I remember just hearing on repeat and (laughs) freedom was always my favorite song on that album because as a kid, it was just super catchy and upbeat Um, but when I kind of heard it again as an adult and was listening back to George Michael stuff and Wham stuff, I heard Freedom again and realized, actually, that's quite a sad and devastating lyric. You know, it's, I don't think it's quite a a cheating song, but I think it's more a song about not wanting an open relationship anymore. And I hadn't really heard anything like that in country music. So when... I kind of stripped it back and started to play acoustic when I was doing live shows. Um, it's probably been in my set for about two years now. It's just kind of taken on a life of its own and become one of the most requested uh, songs at my shows. Um, and I think this cover version just came about so naturally because of that. That's amazing. And I love that you switched the pronouns. I mean, I believe George was not out at the time that it was um, released. So it's kind of nice to be able to reclaim it back to a gay man from a gay man who originally sang it and couldn't at the time. Talk about how that kind of resonates with you. Exactly. That was something I really consciously wanted to do with this cover. I think as an openly gay man with a husband, I would feel a bit weird singing <laughs> singing a, a heartbreak song to a woman. Like it wouldn't, <laughs> it wouldn't quite track with either me or my audience. Um, but yeah, I think... I'm not entirely sure the world would have been ready for a major pop star. Like, Wham were big one day in the 80s. I don't know if they would have been ready for openly gay lyrics in that time. Um, So, I mean, we're, what, 35 years later, 36 years since this song was first released. Um, And I figure, you know, we live in a time where more and more LGBTQ artists are using openly gay lyrics. So it's about time, you know, songs like this kind of had a bit of an update and yeah, we're just kind of claimed back to the the LGBTQ plus community. That's awesome. And it's 
it's so nice stripped down and slowed down and brought that together. It gives it that meaning and it lets you really do listen to the lyrics behind the melody there. Um, have you, what kind of response have you got? I mean, it's playing everywhere. It's got top five, I think, in, like we said, New Zealand and Canada and your UK. Um, talk about the reception to it. Yeah, it's been overwhelmingly positive. Um, radio, yeah, as you've said, radio are really picking it up and I'm getting so many messages from different people who, you know, I've never met before and who I know aren't regular fans sort of thing. So it seems to be kind of exposing me to a whole new audience, which is great. But if, yeah, everyone's kind of said the same thing that they hadn't actually realized how sad the lyric was. So I'm glad they are and that, you know, they're feeling a bit of heartache because I think that's a good thing. <laughs> There you go. You're right. No, you're definitely right. And I always like to ask my singer-songwriters that come on the show, um, your process a little bit. Are you more of a melody-first guy that comes to you and then you add the lyrics? Are you more a lyrically guy? You have a thought in your mind you want to get out and then add the music? Or what's more organic to you? Is either or or is it an equal mix? Yeah, I think for me, it, it's much more organic for a lyric or like a hook to to kind of come into my mind. I tend to always start with like a title of some kind um, and write from there. So I do write a lot by myself, but when I write with other songwriters, I tend to, to write with people who are more kind of melodically minded so that we complement each other. But yeah, you know, right. I always kind of pick up things from my own life but also the lives of people I love and who I see every day um and I'm I used to always be writing on uh like legal pads and paper everywhere but I've since about two years ago I made the transition to a smartphone so now my notes folder is just chock full of ideas and my voice memos and stuff like that so um yeah it's it's such an interesting thing songwriting and how completely different it is for everybody. Very good. I like that. I like hearing about the process behind it. And we're starting to see a lot of, I'm starting to see on my show, I'll say, a lot of country artists, gay country artists now. Um, it's a back in the day where we had Shelley Wright and Ty Herndon at first, and Billy Gilman came out and then kind of went more pop. But now we have yourself, we have Cameron Hawthorne, we have Brandon Stansel in Canada, we have a couple up in Canada. Talk about the genre and what what do you think is going to happen? Are we going to be able to pull this together? Do you guys, is it going to be, well, I don't know how I want to say this. Do you feel more of a community happening or is it still very much everyone kind of on their own out there and you haven't been able to, coalesce together yet i think maybe because i've only been out for as an artist for maybe seven or eight months since my debut single i'm still kind of finding my way with connections in the artist world but there really does seem to be a coming together through things like the q32 chart in canada and the lgbtq chart over here in the uk we're just connecting with each other through these charts you know seeing each other's new releases and through social media and stuff and i think there is a great community sense um, among the artists. So I think for me personally, you know, I'm hoping in the next year or two, we're going to have a breakthrough of some kind where somebody doesn't have to be me, just anyone can have 
a big kind of mainstream country hit with an openly gay lyric in it. I think once we get that first one out of the way, the floodgates are going to open. But um, as we've seen time and time again in country music, you know, the record label heads, the radio station heads will avoid anything that might attract controversy. You know, seen time and time again with like songs like The Pill by Loretta Lynn and Independence Day by Martin McBride. So I think the first big kind of openly gay lyric in country music will probably receive some backlash. But if enough people take it on, fingers crossed, the you know, the tide's going to change and more of us are going to be able to rally and um, really get the LGBTQ voice into country music. Amen, brother, from your lips. I love that. Very well said. <laughs> now, I want to talk a second about your Nashville journey. Um, so you said you just came out recently. So you kind of went there. Um, you Were you out to the producers you were talking with and playing at the time there? And how did you find the vibe of Nashville? Was, was it the country you were expecting or was it different? Tell me how you found the city. Yeah. Um, so when I came out to Nashville, it was very much to play songwriter rounds uh, at places like the Bluebird I got to play and the Commodore Grill and kind of like the songwriter circuit. Um, but I absolutely loved Nashville. I think I was expecting a lot more of a conservative city than it actually is. Um, just through, you know, things you hear in the UK, you know, I think the UK has quite an ignorant view of what the South is like in the US. Um, but I found a very liberal city. I mean, I was there during Pride Month, so we got to see Shelley Wright at Nashville Pride. Um, and I think the, there's just such a welcoming spirit in Nashville. And I, I do think the country music audience as a whole gets a bad rap for being like super conservative and homophobic, everything like that. Um, because when, as I say, when I was singing these songs from an open gay perspective in these venues, I was getting a great response and people coming up to me after the show and saying, you know, I've actually never heard that done in the city before. So like it was all positive stuff. Um, so I absolutely love Nashville. I actually ended up connecting with my producer when I was back in the UK. Um, but I speak to people in Nashville pretty much on a daily basis now, either with my co-writers or fellow artists, or as I say, the, my producer and the, the session musicians. Um, and I just absolutely love it. I would love to, uh, to get out there again as soon as possible, hopefully relocate there for a little while, because um, it really does remind me of the city where I'm from um, in, in the UK. That's fantastic. Well, I have connections. You let me know. I got some connections there too. <laughs> that would oh, be fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> talk about um, talk about the venues you like to play. Are are you more of an intimate venue person? I mean, of course, an artist wants his song out to as many people as possible. But when you perform, what's your preferred kind of venue to play in? Do you like the small, intimate? Do you like maybe the five hundred to a thousand seaters? Or what or what are you looking to play? Yeah. I really like a mix of things. I mean, th this year I was going to be doing some festivals as well mixed in there, which was going to be a new experience for me because at my live shows, I really like to bring the feel of a listening room like they have in Nashville where the audience are kind of told at the top of the show to not talk through like the support acts. And then when I come on as well, obviously encouraged to, to sing along or whatever, but if they want to have a conversation, then go out to the bar, like we're here for the music. <laughs> um, there you go. Yeah, so I really like to 
to give it a writer's round feel for the first half of the show where I'm telling stories behind the songs and, you know, interacting with people. Um, but then with the second half of the show, I really like to let loose and bring a bit of, you know, kind of downtown Nashville to the stage. So it kind of is a show of two halves, um, two entertainment styles that I love as an audience member. So I think it's a really interesting show for people to, to kind of get almost like a two in one. Very good. Well, I want to finish up with uh, your music philosophy. We have um, music industry has obviously changed so much and you've been doing it for six, seven years now where mm. you have these three amazing singles. You're working on an album. Talk about your feelings on an album. Are albums still to tell a story? Are you feel like you're going to try to do a cohesive? Because everything's now singles. You, you drop a single on Spotify every three to four months. What's your opinion on how you see yourself producing your music from here on out? That's a really interesting question, Scott, because as you say, I think particularly in the last kind of two to three years, the industry has changed again. So we're living in this singles culture, which was kind of what the industry was like back in, you know, the 50s and 60s. And right. having grown up in the 90s, you know, I, I'm such an album kid. I love hearing a full cohesive album. So for me, the, the challenge as an independent artist is to toe that line of recording enough songs that, that can be singles. So you've always got, always got a presence on, you know, streaming playlists and on radio playlists, but also making sure that the songs as a whole tell a story. There's an overarching, whoa, an, <laughs> an overarching story to the album. So I know people like Ingrid Andres and Jesse Alexander have released country albums this year, which are kind of eight or nine songs long. And I think that's a really interesting medium now for, for the album because you get to tell a lot more of a story than you would with just an EP, which I know a lot of artists are doing. Um, right. But it has to be a lot more succinct and the story to tell has to be just bang on for, to, to pack enough of a punch in those eight to nine songs. So for me, I think that's kind of the way my album's going to go. I've definitely got another single cycle after Freedom kind of fizzles out of radio. Um, and fingers crossed we'll be kind of releasing another one or two singles next year off the album. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting time. And, um, yeah, I just want to make sure I'm writing great music that the singles stand out on country radio. And... Um, yeah, that they tell my story as fully as possible. Amazing. Well, you are doing it right, my friend, in my eyes. I think you have an amazing songwriting ability, fantastic lyrics, great melodies, and thank you so much for coming on the Left of Straight Show. It's been my honor. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. That was a really cool interview. Getting to talk about all these different things was just so cool. So I'm a great fan of your show as well. So I'm really looking forward to listening back. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome, and you are welcome to come on anytime. I would love to talk music with you. Let my listeners know where they can find you. Your website is gorgeous. Give them your website, and that has the links to all your social media, but you can give them the social media as well. Yeah, it's uh, TommyAtkinsMusic.com. And all my socials are at Tommy Atkins Music as well. Very well. And that's A-T-K-I-N-S, because sometimes in the States we spell it A-D-K-I-N-S. So be sure to use the T. Make sure people know, <laughs> yes. and we'll have a link down below here. Well, 
Tommy Atkins, I again appreciate you being on. I want you to stay on the line for me. We are going to play out with the aforementioned Freedom, Tommy's version. I think you're absolutely going to fall in love with it like I did. We're going to play this out, and I'll be back on the other side. You're listening to the Left of Straight show right here on the Left of Straight Radio Network. Every day I hear a different story People saying that you're no good for me So you love her with another He's making a fool of you Oh, if you love me, baby, you'll deny it But you laugh and tell me I should try it Tell me I'm a baby that I don't But you know that I'll forgive you just this once, twice, forever. Maybe you could drag me to hell and back as long as we're together. And you do.
All right, guys, we are back. That does it for the Left of Straight show today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Big thank you to my guest, Nate Hunt. Thanks so much for sharing your story and your dancing art. A big shout-out, of course, to our correspondent, special correspondent, Zach Day from The Voice, for giving us our Monday Musical Minute. And, of course, all the way from the U.K., Thank you to Tommy Atkins and your great singer-songwriter ability. We appreciate you all. Thanks again for being on the show today. Guys, please stay tuned. We'll be here all week long, Monday through Friday, every night starting at 6 o'clock Pacific Time, 9 o'clock Eastern Time. Tomorrow, a brand new episode, two great new interviews, and we're going to have our West Coast Entertainment Minute with Enoch Miller, the Empress of WeHo. So be sure to tune in for that tomorrow night. Guys, I hope you're following on social media. On Twitter and Instagram, it's at Left of Straight, always spelled L-E-F-T-O-F-S-T-R and the number eight. On Facebook, it's the Left of Straight show page. Please give that a like. And also you can friend me on my personal page, Scott Fullerton. It's public. Just send me a friend request. Let's be friends. You can check out the Left of Straight website at www.leftofstraight.com. Big Gay Road Trip leaves in four weeks, everybody. We'll be starting live shows from Palm Springs on July 13th. Thanks for tuning in. We appreciate it. You've been listening to the Left of Straight show right here on the Left of Straight radio network. Bye-bye.